Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. We're going old school this week on The Real Guy Podcast. My, my father was a, um, a bicycle letter carrier for Las Olas and Cordova Road. The legendary Mark Croca. Getting netting mullet is an athletic event. It should be in the Olympic. We get into some real, real guy talk. Jimmy, what do you do when somebody just cuts your balls off and gets right in front of you on a spot? His recollections of guides that came before him. I, I got to the first time I met Bill Curtis was at the ramp at Crandon in the 70s. And I, he stopped and talked. He, he was kind of a, he was a little bit grumpy. And how he remembers the mullet run. And it was a dark stripe that was 100 feet wide along the beach, as far as you could see both ways. And every 150 feet or 200 feet, there was a massive shower of either tarpon or black tips or whatever the hell else was under that much bait back then. There were, there were not thousands of mullet, there weren't millions, there was probably billions. A little gospel from the most victorious inshore tournament guide that the Keys has ever seen. You can't, you can't lay back, you can't sit back and say, hey, I know enough, because you don't. You don't know enough, and, and you never will, nobody ever will. All this week on The Real Guy Podcast. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to The Real Guy Podcast. Today is a very special day because we are down in Island Murata and we were with one of the world's greatest fishermen and one of the biggest influences on my life, Mark Croca. Um, thanks for being on The Real Guy Podcast. And we have your world favorite, Captain Norm's here with us today. And uh, Norm and... and uh, Mark have had some history, yeah, yeah. Um, over the years, and why don't, why don't we start with that, Norm? How did how did you get to know Mark? Well, Water Taxi uh, had its office uh, above the Lauderdale Marina Dock Store back in the uh, oh, I guess this is 1980s, late 1980s, 89, 90, and Mark was guiding out of Lauderdale Marina back then. And Dad started fishing with Mark before I met Mark. And uh, he was doing the, the tarpon thing, doing what you do, Jeff. Right. And then uh, we fished, gosh, how many years did we fish together? Many. Still do. Many still do. Yeah, it's been a couple, it's been a little bit yet. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was Dad, Dad probably fished with Mark more than I did. Uh, so your father, over the years. So your father had a, had their fishing relationship with Nor- with uh, Mark. Yeah, well, we both did, but uh, yeah, that's that was basically. And, and, and Dad absolutely loved Mark. Um, oh, I loved him too, and 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 he was more than a more than a fishing buddy. He was my friend too, one of my Lauderdale friends. Yeah, and for sure. yep, and uh, but boy, we had some great times. Uh, he was. Dad was probably not one of the greatest casters in the world. <laughs> um, 
I guess I do best by example. And I I told this tale uh, at at Dad's funeral um, when Dad passed away. Uh, we were fishing on the outside of Elliot, I think it was, uh, on the ocean side. And Mark was pulling us down this flat. And Mark calls the shot. There he is, 1 o'clock, 30 feet, or 40 feet, uh, fire now. And, you know, you got to make that shot right as he calls it, otherwise it's done. And Dad picks up the rod, fires at 9 o'clock at 50 feet, Mark says, you blew that shot, Norm, fire. And the next thing we know, Dad says, are you sure I blew that shot? (laughs) And he's hooked up. I remember now. Okay. Mark didn't see the fish. I didn't see the fish. Dad swears up and down, and he took it to his grave, that he absolutely saw that fish and made that There's no way he did. There's no way. And nobody would lie all the way to their grave either. There's no way. But you know what? It's hard to argue with what happened. I know. And, it was, and we caught that fish. It was a nice fish. We, we did. <laughs> oh, man. See, and that, and that, and that, uh, that, that, that summarizes the whole thing. It's like you fish with people, and immediately you develop a relationship that's different. I mean, you can play golf. You can go bar hopping. You can chase women. You can do a lot of things. But when you spend that kind of quality time with somebody, the relationship um, is different. You know what I mean? There, there's no doubt of that. You're, you're eight hours and you're close. You're so close that you, you either come off of the boat at the end of the first time with someone loving them or never wanting to see them again. And right. thankfully in our business, 999 times out of a thousand, a person who's in the boat is there for the same reasons you are because of their love for everything that's outside of the boat when you're on the water. And, and you, you can't help but hit it off. In, in fact, it's probably one of the few, I, I don't want to use the term uh, client, customer, you know, relationship, uh, but it's kind of what it is where it's, it's actually one of those, one of the very few instances where even if you hate that person, you might still go back because they're so good at what they do. <laughs> For sure. Like, I mean, I, I know a lot of people that I despise fishing with, but I'll fish with them over and over and over again uh, because they are that good at it. And I know that there's lots of people that are like that. Fortunately, Mark is not one of those guys. Mark is a, is a lot of fun to fish with. Thanks for clearing that up. Um, <laughs> And and just one little quick note about your father that I wanted to put in, and I told you about this, of course, back during a time when I was going through some tough times in my life. It was your dad that pulled me aside and said, come on, I'm taking you out to lunch. I want you to, let's talk about what's going on. And and, and he, was, he was not only, again, not only someone that I just fished with, but he was a friend, and he was yeah. a reciprocal friend. He, he was very important. And I appreciate that. I have always appreciated that. So thank, thank you, and thank him. Oh yeah, it's you know, I any any time uh, you know, there's just some people in your life that are, you know, you might not see them for a year, but they they're still just that important, you know. And he made yeah. me mad. He the one thing about your dad that made me really angry all the time, we would be out in the boat, and he would see a boat 
halfway out in the Gulf Stream and say, oh, that's a Trumpy, you know, 19, <laughs> 1934 built, a 64-foot Trumpy. I'm like, how in the hell can you see that? And it was a, <sighs> it was a Trumpy, and it was a 64-foot Trumpy. And not only that, most of the time, most of the boats that came by, especially in Fort Lauderdale, he would tell you the owner, where it's docked, <laughs> And it, it was it was unnerving. It, it really was. And I threw the bullshit flag on him a few times, and it wasn't bullshit. No, he knew. <laughs> yep. And you couldn't call him out on it because he'd no. just smoke you. And, and and it was it. He had a photographic memory. Yeah, he did. Uh, absolutely photographic memory. He could remember somebody from thirty years ago that he met one time, and he'd tell you all about that experience. And sure. That I, I don't think you knew this or remember this, but. Um, we went to uh, we went to some committee meeting, a public hearing for the right to fish in the hot water canal. And you know who sat next to me? Your dad. No kidding. Your dad was the biggest voice. And do you remember a guy who had uh, uh, barges named Grady? Yeah, Mr. John Grady. That's correct. That's yes. correct. He was there, and and he. But it was your dad. Your dad and I sat together at those hearings, mm-hmm. and we fought for the right to to fish in the of all places the hot water discharge like it was the manatee issue they oh, they yeah. had painted a picture i don't mean to take a left <laughs> oh, turn no, here no, in the no. conversation no, but go ahead have at it but but uh they they wanted to keep everybody out of there they wanted to stop all fishing uh they thought that we were throwing treble hook mirror lures in the manatees eyeballs and listen we're uh, they're endangered and we we respect them and we educate when we're out we educate people who are in the boat about them but we actually had to fight for the right to fish in in the part of the canal that remained open, not even the entire canal, and they've succeeded in that. Well, they have now, yeah. but but now there's no there's no hot water coming out of right. there on a regular so basis. It's, there's so no it, reason it, to it's go a there. Good point. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. But back then, this was back in uh, I want to say the late '80s or early '90s when that place was still productive. So your dad, you know, again, kudos to him. Yeah. Uh, he was instrumental in, in in us being able to still fish there, and that's and that's the difference between, you know, we we Fort Lauderdale was a marine community at one time. It's no longer a marine community. Oh, I'm sad it's, to hear it's, that. It's it's it really is not. It's become very corporate, foreign owned. Uh, the development, and that's something that Jeff will talk about. But I mean, it's it's uh, you know, and one of, that's one of the reasons we wanted to come down here and talk to you because we wanted you to give us a taste of what it was like guiding back uh, when you started. And before before we. I, just, I want I want uh, I want Mark to understand that what you guys were doing fighting to be able to fish in the hot water canal. I got friendly with Steve Kantner and Carl Ball and a list of other guys because they wanted to close down the fishing on the beach in Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. And we rallied together and I mean literally had hundreds of people to show up for this hearing. Um, and we got it squashed very quickly. But the reason I bring that up is, to this day, fishermen will come together to fight for the right to simply fish. And, and, and I, it's I, sad I, that they have to. Well, you have to. And I think what uh, I think that's what's eye-opening is it, this is nothing new. No. They were, they were doing it. When was that, Mark? That was that was 80s, early yeah. 90s probably. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I'm sure there was fishermen that got together for other places even before that. So with all the gossip that goes around and all the headbutting that, 
that happens amongst fishermen, and especially in the professional circuit, there's a time where we come together and we fight for what's right. And, yeah. it's, and it's still going on today. And I think that's what separates your average outdoorsman or your average fisherman from the actual real guy that has some spirit in it and wants that spirit to live on. Well, that to your point, Jeff, that's that's a great observation. You, you have, it goes, it goes above and beyond if someone's a Democrat or Republican, a man or a woman, whatever all that horse shit has been coming to. If you're, if you're aimed for that goal of just being able to fish, that's all we want to do. Mm-hmm. And most of that is catch and release anyway. Right. The, the, the stuff that you're fishing for on the beach for the most part, the stuff we were doing in the discharge yeah. canal or the, or the port, uh, with the exception of some of the snook, but the snook are so heavily regulated now that at least down here in southwest Florida, the park and the Keys, you have to be a magician to catch a slot snook. <laughs> you're going to catch plenty of 23 inchers and then some, you know, 18 and 19 pounders. But, you know, go try to catch a 29 incher and, and, and in season right. and in the right, whatever those zones are, there's different zones now. You, oh, you're gonna you, be you have to be, you have, you have to be, you have to, right. You have to either be an attorney or hire one to, to understand what you can do and when you can do it. The trout thing, it's all become so complicated and again, Jeff, like you said, we just want to go fishing. We right. just want to fish. That's all. Right. And That's we, all. And I think it's important for all of us for that spirit of fishing to live on amongst the young people. Like we were talking about Zach Routman early. And to see a young guy um, understand the fishery, you know that he has the spirit to carry on. And I think, that's, I think that's a big deal. But talking about big snooks, Mark, almost everybody that I've ever interviewed that came out of the I, ca- I call it the, the tree of, of Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> you know, we've had, we have a tree, and fishermen grow on it. And then they fall on the ground. Some of, them, some of them live on to be other trees. But the reason I bring that up is all the people in, uh, that I've ever interviewed, old schoolers, Tommy Green, George Copeland, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We were all started, and we focused on giant lunker snooks. Is that was that hold true with you also? There's no doubt. I mean, maybe prior to that, we all started with bass because it was accessible and we could ride our bikes there and and you could be fishing. You didn't have to have a boat. You didn't have to have a car. We were kids. We all did it. We yep. all were. We all got on the bike and went where we could go. But definitely, the snook, the snook was more mysterious. The snook was that next level that you graduated to. You know, maybe after even the creval, we could all catch creval. Same thing from the bikes, but the, the snook, you had to have bait. You had to have, you didn't have to. You could do it with mirror lures or soft plastics, but standing on a bridge, I, I still tell everybody um, uh, the most physical thing I ever did in my life was catching gigantic snook off little bridges. Oh, absolutely. We had the, I don't know if you remember the old um, uh, um, archer's hard leather forearm guards, <laughs> and that's what I used to wear because after... Getting After, railed. Oh, my. Railed is the word. And yeah. concreted because yep. a lot of the bridges didn't have aluminum railings. They just were concrete. And and some of the worst injuries I ever had, you know, abrasion-wise, were getting nailed by Big Snook. And you had to use 80 or 100-pound line. Of course, now with braid, braid brings a whole other level to that. But you're right. Back in Back in the day, the first thing I did when I got my driver's license was we had access to all those places by, by vehicle. 
and you could park back then right on top of the bridges and fish, you know, every quadrant of the bridge, swing your mullet under or swing your big mohara under and, and catch one or not catch one, move on to the next place yep. where you had to be tide wise. And we had a whole group, you know, we talked about Howard Brennan, the old that retired Jersey cop that fished Hendrickshall Bridge all the time. Well, he also fished, um, uh, what was the bridge by uh, 17th Street? The um, Mercedes Bridge. Yes. The Mercedes Bridge. You used yes. to be able to park up on the berm up next to that. And I saw him one day. He was loading a 21-pound snook in his trunk, and he had his uh, driver's side car door open. And he had a, it was a, a Delta 88 or a Cutlass 88. But what color was it again? It was green like or opaque blue. It was it was like whatever teal, the color whatever was was right. disgusting. It was just like you would never paint a car that. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, a guy. This is at three thirty in the morning. Uh, a guy going uh, eastbound uh, smashes off the the railing of the bridge and and just narrowly missed Howard who was standing at his truck his trunk of his car and took his driver's door completely off of the vehicle. Oh, my. And he went off of the thing and over by church by the sea. Yeah. And, and did a, a did a one a one tumble oh. and was there. And we went down, and he was okay. He was drunk. And they got him, and, you know, they arrested him. But you're standing on the bridge, you know, in one second, everything is peaceful. And Howard, that's a great snook, you know. And then all of a sudden, here's a drunk coming. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And, and, you know, things like that used to happen at the bridges all the time. Sunrise Boulevard Bridge. I was standing with my father when I was about six or seven years old, and we were leaned over the bridge on the north side of Sunrise Bridge, and you got Birch State Park to your right and the fire station there, and and there's just f 300 snooks sitting under us in the current, and, and we're catching them on jigs, and there was a guy next to my father who was next to me, and some kids coming from the beach again, you know, midnight, one in the morning. Right. Every snook story is in the dark. Every yeah, good snook story is in the dark. And they threw a, 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 a full bottle of beer. And they, the guy standing next to my dad took it in the side of his head. And we had to take him to Broward General. Yeah. And he got, you know, the whole side of his head was stitched up. But we actually put him in the car and took him in. So so was, uh, was Beefsteak Charlie's there? Beefsteak Charlie's was on the... That was also on the north side and of the, the bridge on the left. And the careless navigator. Oh my God! Oh, so, wow. So this is so <laughs> beef steak Charlie's five ninety five. All the shrimp you could peel and eat. That's right. Yep. And we would. We, and I. I still fish there to this day. I'll, yeah. I'll fish right behind there, and I tell people, because that's that's a mega yacht marina now. Yeah. And yep. I mean the finest mega yeah, marina ever built. And I used to tell people that this was just be an alley. And we'd sit in this alley with our bicycles, and we'd fish. And the stench that came from oh, Steak Charlie's the old store, beer. Oh. They, oh, dude, they had all you could eat shrimp, so there was always oh old yeah, shrimp I remember in there. that. And we would fish in that stench back there yep. on a hot summer night, and you could just hear the snooks all the way down the canal. Popping, yep. Boom, boom, yep. boom. Yep. You know, my wife's business is right there. Really? Beef Steak Charlie's, the same soil Beef Steak Charlie's was on. That's now, amazing. She's in the bottom of that Sunrise Harbor. And I took my little girl there, and we we go up to the bridge, and you can still, there's, there's only two or three snooks hanging there now. Right. But they still want to be there after all these years. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, also, at that bridge back in the 60s, um, we caught three and four pound trout, and um, my father caught a redfish there once, and also we caught black drum under that bridge. Ten, trout. 10, 11, on and 12 pounds. Uh, trout. That, that's right. 
speckled trout. And speckled you know, trout. And you know Seven Bridges? Sure, yeah. First, yeah. you know where Seven yeah. Bridges, uh, Dad used to catch. Um, my, my father was a, um, a bicycle letter carrier for Las Olas and Cordova Road mm-hmm. way back. I mean, back when they delivered mail on bicycles. So uh, <laughs> that's how far back it was. And uh, he caught redfish and black drum on those bridges. At Seven Bridges. That's how long ago uh, he was fishing there. Back when Cliff Lake was attached sure. to the other canals via a culvert. Mm-hmm. Cliff Lake had tarpon and snook in it. Yep, yep. Yeah, I, um, we still go We still go back to, to some of the old haunts. The fish want to be there, Mark. Isn't it weird that they go back to... And they do it down here. The same places we fished our whole life. That's They want to be at those places. There's something about... It's, we call them red zones. I don't know. Like, it's... It, like a salmon or a trout in freshwater is like they can't help it their dna makes them want to go back there it's in the back of the river mark is 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 the water's fresh full of duckweed now there's mega yachts everywhere pollution's rampant but on any given day you can go back there by marina bay or west and the thing is slapped full of tarpon now they may only last a day or two right but something makes them want to go back offshore is the same way Mm. offshore it, it you know, at any given time of the year, there's just certain places that are, like you said, Mark, uh, they're just red zones. And they always, it's just one of those places you're always going to check. Right. And then yeah. you're talking about having to go back. There's a rumor in my family amongst my parents that I was conceived on the catwalk of the Seven Mile Bridge. So I've moved back to the Keys. <laughs> so I guess I'm so just going to keep DNA. moving. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and people want to know why he's got the upper edge on everybody. <laughs> So maybe that's true. <laughs> Speaking of having the upper edge on everybody, do you know how many of these tournaments that you've won down here in the Keys over the years? Uh, I do not know. Um, Marcy, my official better three-quarters and, and statistician extraordinaire would be able to tell you that. But no, I do not know. I, I do not know. It's got to be just from – let's just try to paint a picture we're sitting hey, in. That's funny. Paint a picture. Yeah, I get well, it. We're, we Very are. Very good. <laughs> we are sitting in Mark's uh, kitchen, and we're sitting at a table, and the entire, the entirety of the house uh, has these beautiful artist rendering of just all kinds of fish, mostly backcountry. Uh, and I mean, if you, if you were to put together an art gallery, it would look like the inside of Mark's house. However, uh, each one of these, uh, pictures has a placard on it, which represents a trophy, uh, which was a tournament win and or placing. Uh, and I mean, there's got to be at least a hundred of these that are visible to the eye. Well, Marcy was nice enough to show us around a little bit, and she opened up a few closets and stuff, and there's just stacks and stacks, stacks and stacks. of them in the closets. Stacks of them. Well, no, go ahead. So, so those things are great, but the the, the fishery down here is mostly uh, sight fishing, and you you can get fortunate enough. Some people have been fortunate enough to have one or two really great anglers to fish these events with and you develop a teamwork mm-hmm. and, and it's like a doubles team in tennis. It, it's, it's an engine in a car. If all six cylinders are working, the engine works good. If, if four of them aren't working too well, the engine doesn't work too good. So I've been lucky enough to have um, probably more than my share 
of really, really good anglers who have taken their game home and become really, really great casters. And and I, I, I truly believe that when you go out fishing in a tournament, that most everybody in those events is having, give or take a few shots, about the same number of shots at whatever the target mm-hmm. species are in that tournament. And and the competition's that good. I mean, everybody is everybody knows their shit. And, and the guys that have come out in the boat over the years who have taken it to the next level have all done their homework. They've all gone home and practiced, cast a, a couple of guys that come to mind. I mean, just a few of the guys that I fish with who have gotten to that level. You got Dan Zakari, Cal Blumberg, Frank DeLucas, Mo Smith, um, Tim Mahaffey. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm neglecting some somewhere. Um, Rich Barnett, the young guy, uh, um, who's the Apache helicopter pilot. All, all of these, all of these guys have gone home and practiced and sharpened their knife. Right. And all I have to do is find something and then they do the rest. Right. So a lot of it is on them. A lot of it is on them. If you can't do that, we don't catch the fish. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a great analogy about a, you know, all the pistons firing on a, you know, on a well-oiled engine. It's, it's not just about the, uh, it's not just about that, but it's about the, the communication and what you know about the other angler and the, and the chemistry and everything else like that, uh, which would probably make, uh, my fishing and dad's fishing with you that would have equated to about a 1965 Chevrolet Corvair. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is a collector's item. Wait, so. wait, so, wait, wait, say, we put, were, put yourself in a little... We, little were, we, were, <laughs> we were like watching monkeys using tools for the first time. <laughs> I, I don't think... <laughs> Monkeys using tools was the analogy you were trying to convey there, well, but uh, monkeys um, doing something. <coughs> yeah. Well, so well, so basically what you're saying is you're not a magician. You're more like a head football coach that has had the players that would put in the time and the energy to make it happen. There's no doubt. That's no a, doubt. Well, that's, that's refreshing because, you know, a lot of guys in your position would pat themselves on the back and they would say, I or me. Or I did this, or I did that. And anybody that's ever played any type of real sport and has competed at a level realizes that there's very little eyes and me's involved. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and- I, I would do this. I would shake all of their hands. The, all the all the gentlemen who were on the bow of the boat who 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 made this possible. You know, it, it's an it's an intersection for them. It's an intersection of of time and finances and willingness and drive. And, and execution, you know, if they, and, and sometimes that happens to someone for a year or two years. And then there's other rare cases where, I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Jim Boker, but Boker was on top of his game for a few decades down here. It's hard mm-hmm. enough to do for a year or two years, but that's a guy that's, who, that, and that's he was my... tremendous. And, <sighs> and, 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 there's a, there's a handful of guys who are still that good. And, and that's, that's my greatest regret is is the commitment of time i don't make enough time for it and you have to do that and uh you know and and i tell you what what reminded me of exactly what you just said was something that i i said to uh jeff on a previous podcast i just recently at age 56 caught my first tarpon on fly 
56? That's how old you are already? That's how old I am. How old were you when we met? Were you were you 20-something? I was, I was uh, 21 Jesus or 22. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, uh, so at any rate... Um, and Jeff, how old were you when you I know? first saw you? Were you, you were a teenager probably, right? I don't even think I was a teenager when I first saw you. I was probably 12, 13 years old. That's unbelievable. And I would watch you for a few different reasons. Um, one, you hung out at Lauderdale Marina. Okay. I was always at Lauderdale Marina, whether I was on my bike or I was coming up in my little whaler. That was just kind of like my home base. And I can remember you as a teenager or 20 years old or whatever, and you would sit on the coolers there, and you'd wait for your afternoon trip or your second trip or whatever it was. I'd be rolling down there, and I would just watch. And the thing that... uh, Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The thing that really stood out to me at that age was you had a Maverick already. And it was the only Maverick that I ever saw. It was the only flats boat that I ever saw, or at least the first ones that I ever saw. And I think I finally got enough nerve to talk to you. And I said, hey, that boat really works, doesn't it? And you kind of looked at me like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, but, but it was so long, it was so long ago. And you were the first person that made my brain put two and two together saying, you know, I could be a fishing guide. I could make it happen, and I can make it happen right here in Fort Lauderdale. Now, is that the first place you started guiding was right downtown in Port Everglades? Well, f- first of all, to Norm's point about about the the dedicating time to things, yeah. um, I think anybody can can be a guide, and and that's what that's the key to getting started is is putting that you time. You got to put the time in. You have to put yourself yeah. through school. Is right. what you're really doing. Right. I hated every second of school, from first grade to the two or three years I spent at BCC floundering. <laughs> I hated every second. I just I'm looking outside. I'm like, man, look at the visibility. We could be throwing it. You know, I, I it just it drove it drove a spike in me. I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Um, uh, Jeff, getting back to your question, um, the first y- yes, the first places I started working were in Port Everglades in, in 1977. 1970. And I started guiding then. And we were also, because we lived in South Florida and because we were younger and driving didn't mean anything. When you're in your 20s, you could drive cross country and <laughs> you know do it almost overnight and, and, and still have enough energy. But we would also go to Charcoleski, Flamingo, Biscayne Bay, uh, Isla Morada, the Lower Keys. Mm-hmm. Spent a great deal of time in the Lower Keys too. So yeah, we started in Port Everglades, yes. But you also fished the wintertime. Palm Beach. In Palm Beach. That's right. T- tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that was a great fishery. Still is. Uh, they had an outfall there, too. They had a... A hot water canoe. They did have... Well, it was a it was a boil. They called it the boil by Peanut Island there. Okay. And yeah. it was full of big jacks. And, of course, the inlet was tremendous. And we fished a little bit north of Peanut Island. We fished um, uh, by Munion Island. We could sight fish... Mm-hmm. Um, we could sight fish reds and some snook and some black drum 
up on the flats near Munion Island. I understand there's a buddy of mine that lives up there uh, who's a Coors distributor, Eddie Berger, and Eddie tells me that he's catching bonefish there by Munion Island uh, in, in the spring, summer, and fall on the inside in the intercoastal. Wow. Regularly. He doesn't just catch them once in a while. Like he'll catch four or five in a day. It can't, it can't possibly be that way on the weekend, though, because there's so many sandbar. Yeah, but you say that, but but think of uh, think of Sands Cut or Stiltsville on the weekend, and and there's just as many people going by those places, and we still catch bonefish there, even in Ala Mirada. You know, some of the best places to bonefish here are right next oh, to yeah. thoroughfares yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's where the flow is. That's where the yeah. you know the nutrients and and the right grass and the right stuff in the grass is. So it doesn't the the, the fish are going to be here while we're here and after we leave. They, they, they have to be, back to what you said before, those places that they keep returning to, they keep returning there. Yeah. doesn't matter thank whether God. or not you're there. No, thank God they keep returning. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to make a living if they didn't. Right. Now, when you started in uh, guiding out of, out of Fort Lauderdale, um, were there guys that you could look at the way I was able to look at you? Um, there, was, there was two guys that really fished uh, – regularly back in the intercoastal back then one of them fished the inlet and the discharge canal a little bit and i don't know his name it was the dotty red and i'm going way back and if you can come up see this is where we this need is your where dad this is where we need dad dad caught his first tarpon with that guy he would know in one second yeah who he is um uh and the other guy was uh was bill mann bill mann had nope. Uh, an aquasport called the Tarpon Hunter, and he docked it back at Lagomar East on Lake Mayan back there. And and he would go in the discharge canal, and I and he would drift shrimp through there. His yeah. whole deal was put the shrimp out, drift out, and then drift out in the intercoastal, come back and drift out. But you, you, you ask if there was someone that I could look at. I mean, I looked at everybody and watched everybody uh, and tried to learn as much as I could, but really in the intercoastal back then that was the only people that were fishing you had some people that would fish occasionally back in the river you heard all the stories about like you said marina bay and back in there but nobody really there was nobody doing it for a living except for uh, um, bill man was doing it and that was really just seasonal i didn't see him much in the summer i don't know that he lived there in the summer but he was kind of a quiet guy, and, and then all of a sudden he just wasn't around anymore. I don't know if he passed. I think Kenny Collette also. Kenny Collette did a little did bit. Did a little bit of guiding uh, there. Kenny worked at uh, yeah. Harbor Bait and Tackle. Yes, he did. He worked with Roger Wise. And yep. back when they had the, the bait shop was on that very first canal by 17th Street. My yep. my That was the my first custom fishing rod. Oh, my God. Was my first built by... Harbor Bait and Tackle. My first one was a Bill Boyd, Bill oh, Boyd yeah. custom rod. Yeah. And it's funny, I used to net mullet for Harbor Bait and Tackle, for Carl's Bait and Tackle. Uh, they bought dead silver mullet to make rigged baits with. Mm -hmm. And and I sold uh, live mullet uh, to the whole A dock at BMR, the three T's, Lazy Bones. Um, uh, what was the other Robin's Robinson Robinson Robin song, right. happy day today happy day today of course yeah. Zach Tommy Zach, Zach right yep. that was Tommy Zach and I'm, but I'm going way back I'm yeah. going oh no I remember I remember several of those boats yep yep yeah the um, BMR just last year before last they took the A dock what I call the University of Fishing 
and they got rid of it. Oh, no, they did. Yeah, it's yes, gone. they did. No. And it was really hard. There wasn't a lot of us that felt that way, but the ones that can remember and understand what that dock, who came from there, what happened there, the good, the bad, the evil, everything about a dock. And there was so much, I don't know how to say it, say fishing spirit there. Sure. When they, History. When History they, is right. History. When they ripped that thing apart, I took my boat down there, and I just wanted to see if the tarpon were still hanging around that where the charter boats were and i just wanted to see what it felt like and there was this empty feeling in my heart because i can never remember it not being there Mm. and i can never remember not being one of my stops whether it was on my bicycle oh yeah was on my skiff all the way up until picking up my clients from harbor beach i'd have them walk over there and i'd pick them up at the end of the dock there Mm. and now when you drive by I can still see the boats, even though they're not there, and it's all construction now. Huh. Yeah. My father used to drive to uh, Bahia Mar in the afternoon with two six-packs of beer, and he would he would drive there with my mother, and they were, this is what he said, quote, dating. So I'll tell you more about <laughs> that in a second, but um, this was before the seven-mile bridge catwalk. Anyway, um, <laughs> so so they would they would drive there, and they would give a six-pack of beer to one of the guys and take three or four bonitas from them. You know how they used to hang sure. the fish up on the yeah, nails? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, back then there was a sailfish on every, of you know, course. there was dolphin, everything there, wahoo, kingfish. But they would get the bonitas in exchange for a six-pack of beer. And Dad would go to Harbor Beach that you just mentioned before any of those homes were built there. There was a beach and some of the iron seawall. And they would drive there and they would shark fish with rope and chain and tie it to the bumper of the car. And this is going way back before those homes were there. This is 50s, way oh, back. Yeah. And they caught some fish in there that were unbelievable. And they would go on the limbs of the Australian pines, put the thing. And Dad's favorite story was one night they were, as he said, sitting in the car innocently, for sure, mm. in the middle <laughs> of the night. And, and they got a bite, and it took the branch off of the uh, Australian pine a, a big, a major branch off Australian pine and busted at the bumper. And he said, all you could see in the moonlight was the branch going out the inlet. <laughs> oh, wow. Like the, like the Jaws scene. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 This is pre Jaws, but uh, there's Trust some... me, swim. Oh. Swim, Charlie. Swim. Don't look back, Charlie. Somewhere. There, there's some major <laughs> animals still to this day in the port. Well, I mean, talk to, you know, talk to, to Zach, Zach Routman. He's. You know, he fishes right around the inlet a lot and, and, and does really well in there. He's been yeah. catching some massive bull sharks there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the the funny thing about that story that you just told, uh, in the 50s, that was less, less than 10 years removed from when they filled in the original New River Inlet. Which was at Bahia Mar. Which was just south of Bahia Mar. That's correct. Okay. And, I, I mean, I'll, uh, it's just, and I see these old historic photos, can, and it's just amazing how. Can you remember that? No, I do not remember the okay. inlet being there. No. Okay. Yeah, because I, I that mean. That might be a little before, before your my, time. I think it was before I was. Yeah, I saw yeah. some pictures and stuff, and people ask me, and I'm like, no. I don't. No. Those little, I remember the some, old rocks. There's some little rocks we used to catch yeah. a ton of snooks out when we were yep. kids. Yeah. That people said that that was the old inlet. Right. The, yes. the, right. The markers for the, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But that, um, 
I don't know. Fort Lauderdale, um, as much as they dredge it, as many ships as they bring in there and turning on and off the hot water canal and dumping the sewage in the water and dumping all the trash in the water, we still crush the tarpon. It's just amazing. It's, it is amazing. And I thank God for it every day that we still have something left. Now, way back when, okay, could you see, did you have any inclination what not just Fort Lauderdale, but all of South Florida was going to turn into. Did you have a vision? Because I damn sure didn't, and it caught me. I didn't get it till I was probably 45. No. Uh, when, when we, I was born in Bar General Hospital, and we lived in Melrose Park um, until 1974, 75, about 1975, and we left there to move out west. We thought, uh, we thought that plantation was way the hell out west. It was. And it was back then. That's right. Broward Boulevard used to end at 441. Oh, once wow. Once upon a time. Um, so then after that, I moved out to Davie. And Davie was at the edge of the Everglades. And, of course, now Weston, you know, has superseded. Right. You know, and, yeah. and, and, I, I remember the cow pastures at Broward and University. That, the that was Broward, it. Broward Mall was a cow pasture. Yep. Yep. That was that's it. right. It was a cow pasture. I remember yep. that. Um, and that's not really that long ago. No, it I wasn't. Still, I was I in high school. See, I can see in my mind driving by on university I, and looking over at the cows. I was in high school. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. um, no, I did, not, I did not foresee that coming. Uh, my parents uh, got the hell out of Broward County in um, 1980. 85, 86, and went up to Port St. Lucie. And, and dad is still there at 96. Dad is still there. Um, That's awesome. But we, in Melrose Park in the 60s, uh, I, think I, told, I think I told Norm this. If I didn't, I told your dad, and he got a kick out of it. Um, in the 60s, when in Fort Lauderdale, the entire city of Fort Lauderdale, when somebody moved in or moved out, there was an entire paragraph in the paper about them. Where they came from, how many people were in the family. You must have told that story to my father because I'd never heard that. That's amazing. It's true. Yeah. It's true. And I remember reading those little paragraphs. I remember someone would come into our neighborhood and dad would say, oh, you know, we got a new, we got a new guy off of uh, Dayton Circle. Huh. You know, new family. Let's, you know, let's read about him. And there it was. You could read about it. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. No, I did not see anything like that happening. And, and it's caught up to us in the Keys. You know, I moved... Down here, um, to have a year-round um, multiple species fishery. Right. We can do stuff here all year long. We can't do tarpon bonefish and permit every day, but the days we can't, we can do trout and redfish and snook and mackerel and sharks and and and. There's and. always something here. There's always catch. something. Always. Marcy, you, you'd get a kick out of this. Marcy and I sat down a couple of years ago and on a piece of paper. We made a list of fish species. We came up with 37 species that are at our dock. <laughs> that's that's the fish that we have seen at our dock. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah the um, So when you moved down here, did you do that because of your personal will for fishing? Or was it more of a business decision? Or was it blind luck? No, it wasn't luck. It was... It was rather calculated okay. uh i i always wanted to be down here at least part of the year and and as soon as i got my driver's license in in the 70s uh, uh 
I spent at least a few months of the year down here working. I would rent a place. Um, we would fish Isla Mirada in the Lower Keys. I spent part of the year in the Lower Keys, part of the year here. And then, of course, in the interim, we could drive back and forth from Broward to Biscayne Bay. It was only a 45-minute drive. Right. Well, that was before Dade County exploded as well, and the traffic got to where it is now. But it was very calculated because, again, we needed, as the, as the fishing in Broward became um, less dependable, um, you said they're still there. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, but it's not, nothing is like it was back then, of course. And, and you can't be sad Anywhere. about it. You can, right. You can't be sad about it, though, because then you, yeah. you, you'd, you, you, would, you would do something harmful to yourself if you're, if you're going to get that depressed about yeah, like, how it used to be. Like run dinner to boats now. in Miami. Well, but, but you, <laughs> yeah, but you ha we still have the water and we can still make a living from it. Yeah. Right? You can still do something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but no, it was a calculated move to come down here and, and also, you know, to get into the, the tournament scene and, and, and just expand your, you know, expand, expand business. And, and, uh, you know, you, you, so you started down here part-time. When did you move here permanently? Uh, 1999. It was 1999. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this on the way down, about uh, part-time guides. And how has that changed from when you were doing it? Well, put it this way, because, all right, so when you came here, right, I'm sure, you know, the guides weren't, like, super happy. Like, oh, we got a guy from Fort Lauderdale now fishing with us. They hated us. Right. Yeah. They called us the effing Fort Lauderdale trailer guides. They hated us. Right. And, and there, was, there was John Donnell, Bob Branham, Rick Rubel, Kenny Collette. Yeah. That was the group that came down here. And then when we started fishing the tournaments, then they really, really hated us. I, I, I've said this before. We had, back during the time of uh, no caller ID and answering machine, I had death threats on my phone in Davie. We had um, um, tires slashed at the at Lorelei. <laughs> you know, we went through the, the old West days here. Right. And because you went through that, right, in today's day and age, where you see these guides coming in from Montana and Colorado and Wyoming, and they come down here and they fish for tarpon three months out of the year, what's your perspective on that? How does that... The jet set, guys. Because it, cause it, from Fort Lauderdale, looking at it as a tarpon guide, I think to myself, okay, we have guides coming from out of state that are taking money from people that are out of state, that are giving it now to corporations that are public or people from out of state. And I look and I think to myself, is this good for anybody? Or is just this a new way to exploit the resources that we've already exploited? That is a, the answer to that would take another hour to answer it properly <laughs> and with the, and with the appropriate, uh, with the appropriate emotions. But uh, for the most part, we fish tarp in so many different ways here that I respect someone who comes down and fly fishes and is really, really good and has honed that skill because it's very difficult to do that. It's extremely difficult to do that for a whole season. It's a lot of work. It's, it's, a, it's a chessboard. It's positioning. You have to be at places before other people get there. You have to anticipate other people's moves to get your next spot. Generally, when you fly fish tarpon in Alamorada in season, you have time for two moves during the day. Your hmm. first spot, and then you better get to your second spot 
early in the tide to make sure you have it so you can keep someone out of there so you can have those fish to fish. Um, in the backcountry, it, it's, it's a little easier to fish back there. You can fish more spots, but that fishery isn't the same either. That fishery has deteriorated over the last 20 years, particularly over the last five or six. So most of our tarpon fly fishery is on the ocean side here. Mm -hmm. So it has bundled people closer together. The etiquette has suffered. The etiquette has eroded. And, and I do not fish the tarpon fly tournaments anymore. And, and because I fished them for so long, I was fortunate enough to be on the rules committee of all three at any given time, the gold cup and the holly and the golden fly. And every single day in every single one of those tournaments, there was friction, there was a rules violation, mm. there was a complaint, um, and 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 I don't want I don't want to be a part of. I respect that group, but I don't want to be a part of that part of it. I, I want to go fishing and still enjoy it, and and I'll play the chess game. You know, not being in the tournaments too, not being in the tournaments, you still have to play that game if you want to fly fish tarpon, but. I'm not going to be. I'm, I'm going to be courteous and overly courteous, because I don't. I don't want to be part of those confrontations. And if someone, Jimmy Albright, probably summed it up best years ago. Um, I said to Jimmy, I, I got got to know him a little bit many years ago, and and you were talking about you know people that you looked up to years ago. That's one of the guys that I did for sure, and so did many others. Oh yeah. But I said, Jimmy, what do you do when somebody? just cuts your balls off and gets right in front of you on a spot. And he said, I don't yell. He said, I just go up to him and I say, you know, when there's an altercation between cars, the car that's parked in the parking lot usually isn't at fault. <laughs> and, and he said that usually disarms somebody <laughs> right away. And he said, if it goes to the next level, he said, I'll gladly go to the next level after that. But I don't want any confrontations. I want to be courteous, but I also want my space to fish in. Right. And you have to get that. You have to play that chess game to do it. Yeah, but there's got to be one guy, whether you're fishing a tournament or you're just fishing you know, a, 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 a customer, any given day when you see him coming from a half mile away, there's got to be one guy that just gets your ass puckered and you're just ready to just tell this guy, <laughs> who's that guy for you? <laughs> Come on. You want me to drop a name? Absolutely. I, I can't. There's got to be one guy that just pisses you off more than life itself. I, I will. I will carefully us. navigate uh, on the perimeter of this question, <laughs> and there's a handful of those guys. <laughs> yes, there's a handful. I can't drop. I won't drop specific names, but but I I, I always felt that. Give us initials. No, I always <laughs> felt that if if they're making me that pissed off. That's the way they have to feel about themselves all the time. So, so we're. I can't get this guy to say it. I, I can't. I, I knew he wouldn't. And, and you know what? If you if you if you talk to anybody else down here or any ten tarpon fly guides, especially, they all know who those who those folks Absolutely. are. Absolutely. And and it's more it's more the private guy who has his own boat that tries to go out and squeeze in somewhere. That's mm -hmm. our biggest issue. It's mm -hmm. not jet skis. Right. It's not recreational yeah. boats. It's the private guy who has just as much right to fish right. where we fish. So it's a, more of a type of a... Of, it's of more of a... Right, it's more a demographic. Yeah, demographic. If, if you that's, wanted to. that's the word for it. So so, so that, that guy, um, 
I don't know if it's right or wrong to do that, to go out with a guide and then go to his spots. I only know that I wouldn't do that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just would not do that. Right. And, and you know, there's, and that's the thing that, I, that I've seen even in Fort Lauderdale uh, is just a literal explosion of what we call fishing booker guides who, uh, you know, a lot of them are either up-and-comers or they're retirees that just want something to do. So they go, you know, they go buy a boat and they put up a listing on fishing booker and there they are. Yeah. And those are just, I don't know, those are just the worst kind of... Let me use this as a segue because it's on my list of questions to ask. Um, But by the way, that list is very intimidating. I don't know what the hell's going to fly out of their neck, so go ahead. No, no, it's just, you know, like, like I was fortunate enough. um, My dad was in the business. I grew up on the sport fishing boats, and I had a little bit of a nucleus of people that would hired me to run their boats or to fish with them or to be a mate and then as my inshore business started to take off i was very fortunate to be able to take advantage of youtube at a very young birthing of the social media thing which which totally blew up for me but back way back when starting so early um how did you market yourself and what was the best way to market yourself back in the late 70s early 80s as an inshore guide because you didn't get the hotels to say hey uh what do they call it deep sea fishing or whatever it was a it was a niche in fishing that wasn't commonly known and it always was mind-boggling to me that you guys could stay busy well that you can't beat a satisfied guy that walks off the boat and there's no no matter what era we live in that is irreplaceable and i take a lot of shit from um, some of my cohorts here, good-natured poking about about not having a website and this and that, and and you can't you can't buy that kind of advertising. When somebody tells ten other people or tells other people in his town, mm-hmm. uh, that is you cannot put a price tag on that. You could you could sit down and figure out the trips you get from it, but you can't. Uh, the first big giant thing that happened was uh, in the Sun Sentinel years ago. Uh, Craig Davis called me. And he, he was, I believe he was the sports writer after Oz Keggy. Mm-hmm. And, and Craig Davis called and said, you know, would it be okay if we, he was so nice and he did a story. And, and then I, you know, I couldn't even keep up for that year. I couldn't keep up with the people that they came out from a simple, wonderful article in, in the Sun Sentinel. Well, but you did, you were, you were a, a very prolific outdoor writer yourself. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, uh, I started doing work for Florida Sportsman um, a long time ago and then worked for several other magazines uh, around that time simultaneous and still do uh, some things here and there, but was on the masthead at Florida Sportsman for a while. And that's another, Vic Dunaway and Carl Wickstrom, both of those guys, you know, I mean, monsters in our industry. Oh, yeah. uh, um, just, I, I had so much respect for both of them. I, I, I'll never forget, this is a, a, a quick story, uh, we were on a flat, uh, Dad and I were fishing on a flat with Mark uh, down in Biscayne Bay, and the tide had just turned, and there was a tide line that was running in this particular spot, and I I remembered from many years ago, previously, about tide line permits, 
that would feed along the tide lines. And I started quoting from that article because it it, it sunk in really hard with me. I was like, Mark, we, we, we're going to have a shot at permit on, on this tide line, aren't we? He goes, yeah. Uh, and I started quoting from that article. He says, yeah. He says, I wrote that article, you know. <laughs> Back when people used to read. I, right. When people, when there were magazines. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sadly, have you seen Florida Sportsman Magazine lately? Yeah, it's, it's, it's this thing. It's a brochure thick. Yeah. And I'm so sorry to see that because yeah. uh, Florida Sportsman was a, a huge uh, a, a huge part of my life. I, I couldn't wait to get it. Couldn't wait to read it. And it was the size of a phone book. Right. And now it's. I, I, it's so sad to see that. I hope it explodes. I just hope it re-explodes and and really miss that magazine. Uh, there's some that you know. It's it's strange how some of it is really still very popular, and some of it has waned just a little bit. Like Marlin Magazine, for example, is as big as it's ever been. Hmm. Um, there's other publications that are just huge, and I don't understand. I, I think it had a lot to do with when the economy took a dump in 2008, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of these publications, and plus the emergence of Social media. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and I don't think sure. they've quite grown with with that. They had a very good online presence uh, with their chat rooms. I remember that was very popular, but then it just kind of well, died the, after that. That was the beginning and the end for Florida Sportsmen was the fishing forums. Um, although they were able to start probably the biggest and the baddest fishing forum at the beginning. Yeah. But little did they know that it was going to cannibalize on their actual publication because, especially with the younger kids, is they want short, quick info. So if they can get Mark's fishing report, they'll never read the the article about Mark or what he was fishing or why or anything like that. All they want to do is get that short information. Yeah, but they don't want to do their due diligence right, anymore. which, but, like I said, was the beginning of the end. So yeah. there's a great point, Norm, because um, it's like... It's like these people that get injections to have forearms and pecs. Yeah, that's great. It looks good. But the guy that built himself up is the guy that has the right. He's 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 the guy. Yep. He, he and you have you have that now. You have people with the GPS and the and they watch this and they watch that and they go on Winguru and everybody's a weatherman now. You oh, know? Of course. Uh, <laughs> Especially the except us. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And 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 they and they. They go out and they they know exactly where they're going to go. They got a number from somebody, a GPS number, and that's the guy that's injecting. That that ain't the guy that right. learned Artificial. why you have to be there and when you have to be there. That's the guy. That's the guy. And there's not a lot of those guys. There's not a lot of those guys anymore. Okay, and and you know to that point, uh, you know one of the most. If if you're listening to this podcast and you've never fished with Mark Croca, one of the uh, one of the most remarkable takeaways from a day fishing with Mark will be how he knows when you have to be at a certain location and what he calls the window of opportunity, and he'll often refer to that several times during the trip. Our window of opportunity at this location is beginning to wane, or we're going to have a longer window at this. And it, what he's referring to is the tides in relationship to spots. But what's remarkable about fishing with you is that you are an encyclopedia of knowledge, and you'll explain 
why things happen the way they do at this particular uh, spot. And I think that's the difference between a guide and a charter captain. Well, it's like it's like you both were saying earlier, though. The fish continue to do the same things at the same places. And, and uh, uh, Hank Brown said something. He had a great quote one day years ago. And I said, man, I, I can't find them. I can't find the permit in that, in that zip code anymore. He said, well, think about the same thing that happened when they did something different last time. He said, they're going to do the same thing different again. And I, I, it was kind of a jumble of words, but, but he was right. When they do something different, it's the same thing they did different the last time you weren't expecting it. Yeah. They're, they're repetitive in their behavior, and, and thank God they are. We, we could never plug into it if they weren't. Oh, I mean, I remember trips staked out on a flat. We were chumming the spot, and Mark says, the bonefish are going to come from right to left at 10 feet 10 feet is the shot, and he'd make you practice that cast until you got it right. And sure enough, at a certain point, the bonefish, there's three bonefish that come from right to left, and they stop right on your chum. And and it's like, how did you know that was going to happen? But it's the same thing. It's because they, they do the same thing all the time. Yeah. I, I I got to the first time I met Bill Curtis was at the ramp at Crandon in the seventies, and I he stopped and talked. He he was kind of a he was a little bit grumpy, but I think he appreciated young people who were interested in the fishery. You know, you know, geez, you you should have been here, you know, ten years ago when the fishing was good. I'm like, holy shit, the fishing's pretty good now. He said he would take a can of cat food, a can of cat food out on Stiltsville, and go to a white spot. And poke holes in it with a uh, an ice pick, and throw the can of cat food on the white spot. And he said the bonefish would come for two or three hours. And he said, man, once in a while we'd have to get another can of cat food and poke holes in that one too, you know, cat food. And and you know we didn't know it was going to get so sophisticated that it had to be you know a mounding handful of fresh cut live shrimp, you know, pea size corn corn kernel size. I remember that. So yeah. that they wouldn't get full, and you have to throw it at a perfect spot on the white spot and you got to line everything up, you know, it just gets more and more complicated as time goes on, but cat food and right? just unbelievable. I've, I, and, and do you still fish the bay anymore? I do. Do you? I do. I, I, I've got a shot at uh, Homestead Bayfront park. When I, when I put in a Homestead Bayfront, I'm still only 15 minutes away from soldiers and you know, the right. whole circuit there. Wow. But, um, I wanted to kind of, I wanted the audience to hear you say what you saw in the old days, the first time you saw the real mullet run come down the beach. Oh, Jesus Christ. Because what they call the mullet run now, okay, we can call it a mullet run simply because, but the mullet run in the old days was a little different. How did you see it? My dad took me to the South Jetty at Port Everglades, we also went to Anglin's Pier and Dania Pier, and you could stand in any of those places, and it was a dark stripe that was 100 feet wide along the beach, as far as you could see both ways, and every 150 feet or 200 feet, there was a massive shower of either tarpon or black tips or whatever the hell else was under that much bait back then, and we didn't need a cast net. No. You could throw... 
and and I remember buying these things at Carl's Bait and Tackle. The the treble hook with the lead in the middle of it. The, they we called them snatch hooks or snag yep. hooks. Three eyed shrimp. And yeah, <laughs> that's right. And we'd throw that out and and <coughs> snag our mullet and just put them right put them right back out on whatever we snagged yep. them on. And that's how we fished. Yeah. There were there were not thousands of mullet there weren't millions there was probably billions yeah just billions uh, and and I, I i remember i remember that black stripe i remember the perspective looking down at that from peers and of course when you're when you're young heights are much exaggerated in your memory it was like you're standing on a a, a, a high rise looking down and seeing all those i mean it's a, as a kid it's spectacular no. you're a young boy it just blows your mind. Not, not anymore at Anglin's. Anglin's is gone. Anglin's Pier is gone. gone. Yeah, oh, Storm gone. ripped it up storm. and they never fixed it back up oh, again. Oh, my goodness. Gone. Yeah, the piers. And, and, we're, and, and that's kind of normal. We're seeing any place that had anything to do with fishing from Palm Beach to Miami is slowly fading. For instance, there's that, that pier is gone. There was no public outreach saying come on fix the pier we need that yeah. it's good for the kids it's good for this it's good for that um or when they were going to throw the people off the beach where they couldn't fish there was no public outrage thank god carl ball and, and Kantner um tipped everybody off or we were able to rally because otherwise you know it uh they would have closed down the beach and in this day and age because people don't see things like the mullet run because their dads can't take them to the pier and take home dinner. Yeah. People are losing, I shouldn't say losing perspective. They have Never no have perspective. It. They don't have it. Mm. You know? So I always love to ask, you know, guys that really saw the mullet run. Now, to me, mullet are the chicken of the ocean. There is no bait that I would rather have, whether I'm fishing for marlin, whether I'm fishing for sailfish, whether I'm fishing for snooks, or I'm fishing for tarpon, is the old mullet. And I learned that, Mark, from watching you. Because mm. you, know, you would sit at a few different corners on the intercoastal, and your mullets would be sitting back there, or you'd sit in the hot water canal, and your mullets were sitting back there. And amongst everybody else that was fishing with the, with the big mullets, I never knew any different. So I grew up thinking that everybody in the world was fishing with mullets but it was kind of a southeast florida thing it it is the the and and it in fort lauderdale if you you were talking about zach rotman before zach has figured out the path of the mullets inside fort lauderdale and that is the key to success of fishing there if you can figure the mullet out year round and and sometimes it's hard to get a dozen mullet it's very difficult Bingo. he just said it you do know that's one of the one of the phrases that we've coined over the years. What's is, that? Can you get a dozen? <laughs> yeah. You have to wake up every morning uh, and you have to look yourself in the mirror and uh, you have to ask uh, yourself, can, can I or can I dozen? not get a dozen? Well, when you talked about sitting at Lauderdale Marina, sitting around waiting um, in Fort Lauderdale because of time of year and tide and current weather conditions, sometimes the window to get the mullet that you needed to fish your trip with was right at dawn and the trip might not be till three o'clock yep. and you had to be there and you had to get them so you could have them sometimes it was at nine o'clock sometimes it was at noon but you had to be there and you had to make sure that you had that because that was the 
that was the foundation of your day of fishing in Fort Lauderdale was having those mullet and, and they provided so many great, uh, I mean, great scenes over the years of, you know, getting crashed behind the boat. But now here's something interesting in, in the Keys in Isla Morada, uh, we go get mullet and the dead mullet on bottom here is, is a thousand times more effective than the live mullet in most cases. We use, really? we use in, in March, April, May, and sometimes going into the first couple of weeks of June, we fish more dead baits on bottom than we do live mullet. Do you think that's because the fish are conditioned because of all the carcassing? Um, no, no. I think I think what's happened is the the tarpon here, uh, and if you remember the last time we fished, the tarpon here bite from midnight to about yeah. five thirty a.m. Yep, and then they stop. That's it. And and they're not the same after the first little shimmer of light. They're they're not the same. They can turn off at at six o'clock, six o five, six ten. Now if it's if it's crappy out and drizzly, sometimes that'll last longer. But um, we we use the crabs and the pinfish and sometimes pilchards and sometimes live mullet in the dark or at dusk. They'll do it at dusk a little bit. They'll bust them. But once the sun comes out here, they're they're down on the bottom and they're 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 so used to the hours that everybody fishes here and that's how the carcassers came to be the carcassers don't have to go out at dawn or dusk they can go out in the middle of the day and drop all their shit behind the boat and you know make a scene literally and figuratively and and catch a fish but that's funny can you go get a dozen (laughs) that's and and not only that it's not just getting mullet you're thinking about the fishery that day and you're thinking of a specific size mullet that's true. Oh, yeah. You may need for that day. Yeah, you, maybe you can go get, you know, a, a 22-inch black mullet somewhere up the river, but that's maybe not what you want to use for bait. You may need a 6-inch silver for something that's on your mind. So that's further complicates the matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, we Oh, may- and so, I'm sorry, I go forgot ahead. one more thing. The 7-foot net limit in Broward. Yeah. The more, you know, more, more handicapping. Well, you know... I- I listened. I listened to that podcast you did with uh, Andy, and you were talking about the seven foot net and and the restrictions, and we we're only allowed to use a seven foot net. But I got to tell you, and maybe it wasn't like that when you were fishing, but the mullet are so thin nowadays. Like you're, you know, you're you're throwing at mullet that are racing by the boat like a bonefish. Oh my goodness, yes. So so to throw a to throw a six or a seven footer, kind of like Spider Man throws out his web real quick, is the ticket. It's not like there's a a thousand mullets sitting there where I can throw a 10 footer and pancake them and no. get them all. I mean, we're getting onesie, twosie, threesies at a time. Yeah. So that seven foot net that can come out, you can load it quick and it can come out quick is a better tool than say a 10 footer. For sure. It's, it's getting netting mullet is an athletic event. It should be in the Olympics. Sh- <laughs> I'm good. serious. Ah, yes. My God. Oh yeah. Rate the opening, rate the distance, the accuracy. Yeah. You know, yeah. For well, sure. And you know the German judge is always going to be tough on you. <laughs> uh, the, the art of catching mullet, um, no, no, no bones about it, is the key for inshore fishermen from, let's call it Palm Beach to Crandon. There's no doubt. And down here, too. Throw it in down here. You know, we have two full-time, for three months of the year, we have two full-time guys here that net mullet for all the charter boats, yep. for all the bay boats and the skiffs. I've, I've, I oh, used that, to buy, I used to buy mullets from them. Yeah, that's because cheating. I, I, I had a boat that I couldn't <laughs> net mullet with. Well, here's the problem: those guys don't go in the park. They don't. They didn't. None of them have their 
park license. So they net here and they spend a great deal of time in our canals mm-hmm. right here behind the house. Yeah. So go try to get, you're talking about go get a dozen mullet. At the end of the day, when you're done fishing, when those guys have been throwing their net all, all day long from dawn till, you know, getting ready for the afternoon trips, the guys to go out for shift number two, go try to get a mullet around here. You said they come by like bonefish. Here they come by like wahoo. <laughs> it is. You have to be able to throw that net. You have to throw your net 25 feet and open it reasonably well and do it and pretty damn quick. Yeah. And that's yeah. a, and that's a fast sinking net too. So that's yeah. a heavy net. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it is. Yeah. That's why you guys are in better shape than I am. Well, it, it's it's what you have to do. <laughs> you just have to do that to get them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like I mean, I I always I always put everything in the perspective of sports. In most sports, like I grew up playing football. You know, um, there was a system. If you practice that system and you refined your game, you could overcome size, you could overcome speed, you could overcome a lot by technique and practice. And people think that fishing is not like that. No. And it's all about that. It's practice, practice, practice. It could be the simplest thing, like in basketball. You know, these guys that are getting paid millions of dollars, they get up every morning, they go to the free-for-all line, and they start practicing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And... I'm 54 years old now, and I'm practicing still. Oh, yeah. And the day you quit that practice, you will hurt yourself, and you'll fall down that ladder one step, but surely you will come back down that ladder. George Wood, who we just lost, unfortunately. No. He was one of, yeah, George Wood passed away this year. Yes. <sighs> uh, George was a very underrated guide here he he really not unless you were talking to george well that's true (laughs) that's true but you know what if you can if you can walk the walk you can talk to talk go ahead and talk and And, he did and he did correct uh he he was he was very very good at a lot of different kinds of fishing uh around isla Morada. but he used to talk about he used to talk about that he said if you're not moving forward you're moving backward he said i'm always trying to learn more and get better and do this a better way i'm always trying to get better and 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 he was right he was right and as competitive as isla morada is you, you can't you can't lay back you can't sit back and say hey i know enough because you don't no. you don't know enough and and you never will nobody ever will we, we practice all the time you know i had my i have you know i don't have them right now i ordered them but i have the rings out on the canal we practice casting all the time i still practice with my cast net and and that's the thing. I mean, I got my my kid just uh, came to live with me uh, at 19 years old, and and I've got to show him. You know, when he was five years old, I sh- I I taught him how to throw with a Zebco 202, uh, which we all started. Which we with. all started Everybody. on, and I wanted him to start the same way I did. <laughs> and so I went out and I got him a Zebco 202 in 2000, and I think it was four or five. Uh, when when he was just old enough to stand and 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 have a modicum of uh, you know hand eye coordination, mm-hmm. uh, and I put one in his hand with a rubber core sinker and I taught him how to do that and he could fire that thing across the lot and I mean he, he was good at it but now at nineteen you know we've we've had some time pass between us and I want him to learn how to throw with a spinning. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with spin gear, mm-hmm. and so I just got I got to start that all over again. He'll do it, yeah, and yep. he will. But George George used to say, George Wood used to say, "Son, this is a sport. This is not fishing. This is a sport like any other sport." Exactly what you said. Oh, yeah. Things are moving. I'm moving. I'm moving the boat. 
your eyes are your coordination. He said, it's a sport. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that golfing, most golfers, really good golfers, are also very good fly fishermen? Oh, yeah, for sure. For the same reason. Hand-eye, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got the hand-eye coordination, you got the practice element, but I would, I would take it a lot further than just golfers. I think um, people that understand athletics and understand mm-hmm. the process sure. it takes to, to you know be an athlete, then fish, and it's easier for them to say, hey, this is what you have to do. You have to dedicate yourself. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the practice. You have to surround yourself with people that are the best. Yeah. And then, and like just like in any other sport, if you don't do that, you are never going to be the best. With as much talent as you may have, without <coughs> that, that is your missing link. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Mark, it, one thing that has always amazed me about you about – you know, Mark's probably he, he Mark's modest, but he's probably the winningest uh, backcountry tournament guide in the Keys, and at least in recent history that I know of. Uh, certainly, one of the top echelon guides, and it's one of the reasons we came down here. Uh, but Mark's also very—you you fly under the radar. You don't have websites and you don't have you know you don't have the tv shows and you don't do the you know the big social media thing and tell us a little bit more about that part of your life and why uh why is it that you do that because i you know you could easily get a fishing show you could easily you know be one of these big quote-unquote celebrities if if that if that ever comes, it it'll be great. If it doesn't come, it really doesn't make any difference. The, my favorite thing to do is to go fishing, and that's all I want to do. I'm not. I don't have anything against social media. Um, I think it's great if someone figures that out and can make a business model and 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 go about their life that way. That's great. Um, I would I would much rather stay one on one with people and and develop the friendships and stay low-key and simple and non-complex um uh, i just don't if i can be practice casting in the backyard why why would i want to be on on facebook you know that's that's just the way i look at it Mm -hmm. and 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 marcy will sometimes give me a little bit of a hard time about um about maybe having a bigger presence and getting more in tune with technology but someday i mean when it's necessary Someday we, I still haven't texted. I don't know how to text, and and I and I know that's uncommon now. But I just don't want to get into that. I want to. I want to be. I want to be more hands-on with everything. I don't want to look at things on the computer. I want to be doing them. I I don't. I don't want to send pictures out to everyone about what I've been doing. I want to get onto the next picture someone's going to take. Right. I I want to continue to move forward and continue to improve. And I always felt when you when you got into too much into that um, that that your your foot is off the gas pedal for a minute, and I don't and I don't want to do that. Well, and it's 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 kind of like fishing. When you do do that, your focus has to be on that. Therefore, your focus isn't on what makes your what makes you tick, which is the fishing itself. So, yeah, it's uh, it's normal. See, I think social media is just fine for all the people that knew what it was like before social media. Mm-hmm. 
Where I think social media is not fine is, like, my daughter doesn't know what life was before social media. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So for them, uh, it's got to be so much harder. You know what I mean? To to kind of navigate through it and understand what it's good for, what it's not good for, and that kind of thing. Um, but social media is definitely a double-edged sword. It's done some really great things, and it's done some really bad things. But I think all change has that same element to it. And it's what you do with what's given to you is what makes the difference. Agreed. Oh, yeah. And Mark, what you've done uh, in the fishing world um, is just phenomenal. And it's going to live on because you can't duplicate it and you can't replicate it. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Ah, yeah, there's no two ways. Well, the social media thing is is when I get somebody, a 12-year-old or 10-year-old, 14-year-old young man or woman in the boat, and we go out in the morning in the dark and we get to the first spot, and all you can hear is tarpon popping or snook popping. And they're sitting in the corner texting. Ugh. I, can't, I, I, I can't understand. I would rip my arm off at their age to be in that position. And, and donate a finger, you know. And then and their, their head is down. And I, I, that I do not understand. Don't, they're don't missing get it, never so will. much. The world is out here. The world isn't down here in the corner. Yeah, on your thumbs. It's not. It's yeah. just not. That much I know about it. Yeah. Not many things get me mad enough where you feel like your your back or your back, your head starting to warm up or whatever. <laughs> but when I when I bring out like an eighteen year old, right? And they lose a fish. And they're more pissed off because they didn't get their Instagram photo. <laughs> oh, right. That's right. You know what I mean? Right. That's what they're mad about. They're That's not right. mad that they screwed up. That they up, lost the fish. That they That's screwed right. up or the tackle broke or whatever. They're more <laughs> mad about the Instagram. And, and, and it, it, it infuriates me to a degree where literally <laughs> I can feel my temperature. You know, because I, I, I want that kid to realize the opportunity that just flashed in front of him was not an Instagram moment. No. Right. You know, this is real life. This yeah. is what your dad brought you out here to experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? But when that kid gets to be 45 years old, 
he'll be thinking about it a little differently than I was thinking about it. Just just like Mark thinks about this stuff a little bit different than, say, we do. Oh, yeah. And the generations go on and go on and go on. Hmm. But that's so, it's so important about these podcasts is they can get the most talented people that put themselves in the best position. And we can go on for hours yeah. and talk about this. But I'm going to wrap up the podcast because we're not, we've been doing this for an hour and 20 minutes. Goodness gracious. And we could, I think we could <laughs> I think go, we could we go, could go another go hour and 20 minutes easily. And I got a feeling um, this may not be the last podcast that we do. But I can't thank you enough for having us. And um, for me, I'm, I'm going to talk about sitting down in Mark Kroger's house and doing a recording with him for the rest of my life. And I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you guys for making the drive to be here. It's easy for us to be here. We live here. You had to get in the get in the car and schlep all the way from Broward. It was and no schlep at all. Pleasure having you, and come back for any reason, anytime. We're gonna we're gonna fish. Well, yeah, we're, we're gonna fish. Yeah, that was uh, uh, <laughs> that was my bad. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> this shit happens, but uh, yeah. yeah, just for the audience to know that um, yes, we did end up booking the trip from the last podcast, and no, we didn't end up going fishing because I got booked, and I couldn't make it down early enough busy working to have fun <laughs> but anyway um great time thanks so much thank you guys thank you so much run that dog run that dog you did it <laughs>